Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True Crime New England. What's up, everybody? Hello. Welcome back to another episode. We're so glad you could join us today. We've missed you. We've been thinking about you. And it's been a really long week knowing that you weren't listening to our voices. So to say we're relieved is an understatement. (laughs) So thank you for joining us. So before we get into the episode we have for you today, we have a very exciting update. Oh, yeah. If you've been keeping count at home, if you've been keeping track at home, it is time for another round of our swear jar. Yes, this is the first episode of this round. On next week's episode, we'll have the total for the last 10 episodes and how much we will be donating to Black and Missing. So stay tuned for that. But as today is the first episode of this next block, it's time for a new organization. Hell yeah. So before we chat about the lucky organization that we will be donating some funds to in about 10 weeks or so, if you guys are not familiar with our swear jar, it is where we keep track of how many F words we say throughout each episode in a batch of 10. Mm -hmm. A lovely listener and a friend of ours, Janice, came up with the idea. And every batch of 10 or so episodes, we donate to a different organization. So far, we've made plenty of donations to places such as the New England Innocence Project and Bridget's House of Hope, which is a new shelter in New Hampshire that houses victims of sex trafficking and even accepts people with drug abuse problems, which is not usually the case for this kind of like shelter. Mm. We've also donated to Beyond the Rainbow Fund, which is a cancer organization based out of Exeter, New Hampshire. It is basically building funds for the family members of people suffering with cancer because life still goes on and bills still need to be paid and mortgages still need to be had. And we did that one in honor of my grandmother who passed away in June of breast and liver cancer. So we've done that and we've done Stop Handgun Violence, which is an organization out of Massachusetts, but widely known across the nation because of, well, stopping handgun violence, which is very prevalent in America obviously. So we've donated to some great places. We've even made a donation to the Trevor Project in honor of our 20th episode, The Drowning of Charlie Howard. So we are nothing if not very excited to be donating money. Initially, when we started this, Janice, your friend Katie, our friend, said, why don't you do a swear jar? That was mostly because my grandma used to listen to the podcast and she always oh, I like your podcast, but I just wish you wouldn't say the F word so much. (laughs) So we made it into a fun game. And here we are like six organizations later, and it's awesome. So pretty excited every time we get to announce a new organization we're going to donate to. We have a really good one for you guys for this batch. It's called the Prisoners Legal Services of Massachusetts. Obviously, we're staying within our realm of true crime and within New England. So this organization is based out of Massachusetts, and I'm going to read you their mission off of their website. It is to challenge the carceral system through litigation, advocacy, client counseling, partnership with impacted individuals and communities, and outreach to policymakers and the public in order to promote the human rights of incarcerated persons and end harmful confinement. Which is great. They work on focusing on five key priorities, which are healthcare, conditions of confinement, solitary confinement, brutality, and racial equity and corrections. So as we know, and as we've talked about pretty frequently on the podcast, 
and we talked about especially when we were donating to the New England Innocence Project, the vast, vast, vast majority of incarcerated persons are people of color. Right. They also make up the vast majority of people who are improperly placed in confinement. Yes. Solitary confinement is an atrocious human rights issue. Brutality within prisons, especially towards incarcerated women and incarcerated individuals, especially trans individuals who face a lot of violence from not only fellow inmates, but correctional officers as well. Yeah. A lot of times abuse that is enacted towards people who are confined is withholding health care. Which is awful. Withholding medical treatment. Um, it is so horrific. And, you know, a lot of times when we talk about episodes that we've covered and cases we've covered, the perpetrators... We often talk about their sentencing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they are not sentenced appropriately. Sometimes they are sentenced appropriately and they're off the streets and they're behind bars. Mm-hmm. Regardless of a crime someone has committed, justice has been served by placing them behind bars if they're supposed to be there. Right. But, you know, conditions in prisons, it is consistently a human rights violation consistently they're facing abuse, awful conditions, especially if they're not supposed to be there in the first place. Right. Or especially if they're there for a much harsher sentence than the crime that they committed allows for. Right. We see that too with people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a saying that if you go to prison, you should be scared of the white people behind bars because they are the ones that actually committed the crime. Wow. And should be there. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't, I've never heard that. That's interesting. People like to talk about, oh, you know, you should be scared of the gangs of people of color behind bars. And, you know, a counter to that is you should be scared of the white people because they actually committed the crimes. I'm scared of white people. <laughs> and I am a white person. Because, I mean, it's it's true. They, white people, we get away with everything. Mm. And it's not, obviously, it's not fair. I don't have to tell you guys that. But... You know, it's not fair to those people behind bars that are maybe, like you said, getting a harsh sentence for something as simple as a nonviolent drug possession charge, which we see all the time. Mm -hmm. Because for some reason, the law still sees marijuana as a dangerous whatever. And that's absolutely stupid. So there are a lot of people still in jail for something as simple as marijuana possession. Definitely. So they obviously should not be in jail. And that's part of what this service helps with. Right. And they have lawyers on staff and their staff actually speak regularly at public hearings. And they work really closely with lawmakers to make legislative changes that are meaningful. You know, a lot of people say that, oh, your advocacy is not legitimate unless you're making legislative changes. Mm -hmm. These people are doing that. Which is awesome. As well as making change actively in Massachusetts prisons. Right. And honestly, too... Despite this only being in Massachusetts, it is very influential to how the prison system works throughout the rest of the country. 100%. I think it's a great organization and it really brings light to kind of the idea that maybe you and I, Katie, as normal civilians would think, well, someone else can do it. Someone else with more power should take care of it. And that's exactly what they're doing. So it's amazing. Great organization. Very excited to be donating to them. So Guys, this episode 81 through episode 90 will be contributing to this round of donations. So keep track with us. How many times do we say fuck? Oh, there's one for you. (laughs) You know, and we'll obviously at the end total it up. Let everyone know we donated it. And also, of course, encourage you to donate as well. Donating in general is a wonderful thing. 
I think it gives me a few years of like good karma. And also, it, I mean, it feels good. And if you have the means, which not everyone does, but a little bit can go a long way. And so I'm always happy to do it. Definitely. And we've raised some good money. Thanks to you guys as well. We've had pe many people match donations. We have one friend who is anonymous that matches every time. So very, we're very lucky. And, you know, basically while we do this is to make a difference and also to kind of encourage you guys as well to make a donation. So get on it. <laughs> Just kidding. Unfortunately, in a not at all surprise, we're going to take it down a little bit. And our case today is pretty, it's pretty awful. I'm trying to think. It's pretty evil, too. It's just, it's very sad. And I feel like this case got a decent amount of attention just because of the circumstances behind it. But frankly, for me, it wasn't one that I had heard of before we had chosen it to cover. Mm -hmm. So thank you, Carrie. I hope I'm saying your name right. K-A-R-I for sending this to us via email for yes. us to cover. Great idea. I'm excited to cover it because it's definitely not one, like you said, that we've heard of. And while the information gathering was kind of difficult because of all of the moving pieces and not a whole bunch of information about Stephanie, like just a whole bunch of random things to put together, it's still very interesting and also, of course, very important to talk about. And without further ado, today we will be covering The, the Murder, Murder of Stephanie, Stephanie Campbell. Campbell. All right, Katie, I would love it if you gave me your sources. I would love to tell you my sources. I just love our friendship. I really do. <laughs> my sources today are the Nashua Telegraph, Foster's Daily Democrat, WatershedPost.com, TheCinemaholic.com, and WMUR, a classic. A classic. I, too, have the Nashua Telegraph. In fact, I had three separate articles from the Nashua Telegraph, so thank you. I also had an article from the Keen Sentinel, a thread from Web Sleuths, I use NH.gov, the Merrimack patch page, Record Online, Legacy.com, basically for um, Stephanie's obituary, and also a blog called DreamandDemon.com, which I liked. Cool name. I liked it a lot. All right. Let's start real quick setting the scene. Who was Stephanie? Well, Stephanie Campbell was born on March 31st, 1983 in Manchester, New Hampshire, where she grew up and continued to live until she was murdered. Sadly, not much really can be found about Stephanie growing up. It's not really known, you know, what she did as hobbies. I don't even know if she had any siblings. I guess I probably should have looked at her legacy page a little harder. I looked at it for the picture of her. Yeah. There wasn't really a whole lot on there, which it was is a, really sad. It was a very short obituary. And when I was reading through the people who left like kind words, I just kept seeing that she was just a really nice person, a hard worker. Somebody said something about her working so hard to get her GED and, you know, having a goal of getting her own apartment for her and her children. So unclear, but it sounds like maybe she did not graduate high school, rather got a GED. Whatever it was, she was no very well loved. And that's very obvious. I wish I could tell you guys more about her, but I really don't know. And I hate, hate, hate when we don't have a lot of information 
about the victim and we have more about the perpetrator. I hate it. She deserves to be talked about more than her killers. 100%. So I'm sorry I can't comply with that. However, what I can tell you is that Stephanie was an amazing mom who loved her children. So she had three kids. Two sons, Gregory and Sage, and a little girl named Jasmine. So Jasmine had a different dad than Gregory and Sage. And she was known to just be very dedicated. She loved her kids. Like I said, somebody had commented saying that like she was working so hard. She worked so hard to get into an apartment with her kids. She was clearly very devoted. And, you know, it's unfortunate that part of that maybe ended up being a reason why she died. Turns out Gregory and Sage's dad was a man named Anthony Santos. And according to friends and articles, Stephanie and Anthony had been in what was described as a violent on again and off again relationship. Unfortunate, not that uncommon. It appears that as recently as September of 2010, which was not even a full two months before Stephanie was murdered, that the pair was still living together and Coming out of this month, there was an assault charge against Anthony for assaulting Stephanie and one of their sons. He was ordered to have no contact with Stephanie at the time of her murder. Clearly, this relationship was very toxic, and it's unfortunate that they probably could never not be in contact because they had two children together. And while Stephanie loved her kids very much, she did have to let them see their dad, which is, you know, not every kid needs that if their dad is a piece of garbage, you know? But that's really all we know as a background regarding Stephanie and her little family. And again, her kids, they just loved her so much and she loved them. And, you know, having a toxic relationship with someone that you unfortunately are tied to for life, Mm. that can be so hard to get out of as We all know, and sometimes things like this happen, and it shouldn't. On November 2nd, 2010, 22-year-old Molly Martell stabbed 27-year-old Stephanie Campbell in Manchester, New Hampshire. Stephanie later passed away at Elliott Hospital. The two girls were friends from working with one another, and they knew each other very well, actually. They used to work together, of course, and Molly and her boyfriend at the time were really close with Stephanie and Anthony, and Molly would often help Stephanie out with her kids and drive them to school on occasion. Which, you know, honestly, I didn't know that. I didn't see that anywhere in my research, so that's really interesting to hear considering what's about to happen. Mm. Or, rather, what just happened. And all the details that unfold. It's very interesting. Yeah. So their friendship had actually started to sour before this, and we'll get into that, but... Stephanie and Molly began fighting when Molly showed up at Stephanie's apartment on 28 Dutton Street in Manchester and said something about taking her two sons. Right. So Molly had actually started dating 31-year-old Anthony Santos, which is the father of Stephanie's two sons. Mm -hmm. So that was not a great situation. Right. Um, Especially seeing that Molly and Stephanie were friends. Right. And now your supposed best friend is now dating the father of your children and the man who was abusive to you in said children. And you confided in said best friend about this abuse. Right. And I hate to say it, but that's like number one girl code. You do not date 
your friend's ex. Hello? Ever. And then taking into account, you know, Stephanie confiding in Molly about the abuse, about the assault, Mm -hmm. uh, not only herself, but her children. Yeah. And knowing that he had a no contact order, which is interesting because they together, Anthony and Molly, went to go pick up his sons from Stephanie's place. Interesting. And also like breaking the no contact Mm. order. And it was interesting too, because, you know, Stephanie obviously had been having a grudge against Molly, understandably. And it also seems like Molly was dating Anthony, but also was dating someone else. And what kind of pissed Molly off and made her come back to the argument, come back to the situation later, as we'll talk about, was that Stephanie threatened Molly by saying that she was going to tell Molly's other boyfriend that she was sleeping with Anthony. And Molly didn't like that. Mm. She was like, we're not sleeping together. We're just friends. Whatever. He said that too. I don't know. Yeah, I call bullshit on that. I'm sorry. I call bullshit. 100% with you on that one. And that's also really fucked up too because Molly and the other guy Molly was dating, mm-hmm. her actual boyfriend, and Stephanie and Anthony, when they were all on good terms, would hang out together. They'd yeah. go on double dates all the time. Yeah. Stephanie was still pretty good friends with Molly's boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were kind of a group of four. They all knew each other. Right. Well. Before it kind of felt a shit, but... You know, still, that's your friend. So Stephanie was trying to look out for her friend. Right. And let him know. And this really pissed off Molly. Like, super pissed off. And, of course, Anthony was now pissed because he was like, I don't want my friend to know that I'm sleeping with his girl. That's number one boy code. Right. You just don't do that shit. It's awful. And that's not to say that Molly's not at fault here, too, because absolutely, you're sleeping with your boyfriend and his best friend or whatever. That's ridiculous. Come on. So Anthony, of course, was like, no, Stephanie, we're not sleeping. We're just buddies. Like we just came to get the kids. I'm just happened to be hanging at her house and happened to be in her car and et cetera, et cetera. So it was looking a little, maybe not like just friends incident. When the two girls were fighting, neighbors attested to hearing the women going back and forth. I'm sure yelling, obscenities, swearing at each other. And then they heard a threat Mm. where Molly said, I'm going to come back here with a knife. Yeah. And here's the interesting part is that at this point, Molly was on the sidewalk and Stephanie was yelling out her window. So she obviously at that point, you can't, she couldn't be harmed unless there was like a gun. So she was in the safety of her window. But naturally, because she was on like, I think the second or third floor, and then Molly was on the ground. That's a loud conversation. So like you said, plenty of witnesses heard and saw the commotion and were like, what's this now? And as a result, heard that threat Mm. that Molly would be back. And I think it's important that that was heard because that's a good piece of evidence via a witness because that's exactly what happened. So after this initial screaming match where Molly was on the ground and Stephanie was in her apartment... Molly and Anthony returned back to Molly's apartment with at least one of the sons, and they decided to watch a movie. They popped it in Molly's laptop when Molly was like, I need to go run errands with my friend in Massachusetts, which a little confusing, 
Okay, a lot of confusing. Why? First of all, it was already nighttime. So I don't know why she would suddenly take a, another friend to Massachusetts, which isn't like super close, to go grocery shopping or run errands. It felt weird. Right. What is going to be open at that time to run errands at? Right. It was very bizarre. The person that she was going to run errands with was her friend. His name was Jerry Turner. So after a while, Anthony actually became concerned because he hadn't heard from Molly. So he called her and he said, hey, you know, where are you? What's going on? And Molly was like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. And that I'm going to be home soon. Great. And he was like, okay, cool. We're just watching Big Hero 6 or whatever. When not too long after that, Anthony's phone started ringing. And he was getting calls and texts from several friends saying, and I don't know how they knew this, that Stephanie had been stabbed. Anthony, I'm sure, was in disbelief. And then not too long after he was like alerted that something happened, Molly called him. And they actually have these records, um, proof that this call happened. Basically, Anthony later testified that he did not remember getting back on the phone with Molly. But phone records show that within minutes of Stephanie being stabbed, Molly and him talked on the phone for 10 minutes. It was about 9.07 p.m., which we later would learn turned out to be right after she was murdered. So I think him not remembering is a total bullshit. Mm -hmm. And obviously he knew that Molly was the one who had stabbed Stephanie and ultimately led to her death. She'd been stabbed, I think they said four times. Yep. And the fatal one being in the chest. So he's getting these phone calls. And then all of a sudden he finds himself on the phone with Molly. And he says he could hear in the background the friend, Jerry. And he says that he's hearing him saying, it was self-defense. It was self-defense. I'm so sorry. He kept saying that. And Anthony was like, what the? Like he, at least he claims he was like, what the hell is going on? And he didn't know what was happening. And he was shocked and scared and sad. Again, Stephanie can't tell us this story. That's just what he's telling. And he's also a guilty man. So it's not really clear. Mm. After stabbing Stephanie four times, like you said, Liz, Molly actually fled the state. Oh, good. That's crazy to me because, you know, if I were not guilty of something or if I were involved in a crime with self-defense, especially being in the state of New Hampshire where we have pretty hefty stand your ground laws and a lot of laws about self-defense. Sure. So knowing that information and also knowing what had happened, if I were saying it was self-defense and I thought that I wasn't guilty, I don't think my first course of action would be to drop everything and run to a different state. Immediately to a different state. Actually, several states over. Yeah. Molly was arrested two days later on November 4th at the Colonial Motel in Napanock, New York. Police had a feeling she would be at least near the area because she had friends in Ellenville, New York. Mm -hmm. And as they were looking for her... They were driving by the motel, and they're like, hold on, isn't that her car? <laughs> That's the only car in the lot with New Hampshire plates, first of all. Yep. Er, she <laughs> pulled in. The owner of the motel actually stated, quote, she was a very shy little lady. Ooh. And he asked her her name and her age, and Molly gave him the fake name of Mary Marquis. Oh. But she said, I don't have any ID. Woe is me. Oh, God. Oh, I'm sorry. But she paid for a three-day stay in cash, 
And the motel owner said, quote, usually I don't rent to people without identification, but I don't know, usually nice people don't give you a problem. She was nice. I gave her a break. The owner was absolutely shocked to learn what Molly did once police arrived and asked the motel owner for her room number. Interesting. She looked like a meek, young little college girl. I mean, she was 22. Yeah, she was young. And she, um, I hate to say it, but she was pretty. Right. You know, she was a pretty young girl. She doesn't look like someone that you would think of as being even sketchy. Like a hardened criminal. (laughs) No, she definitely did not look like that at all. She actually was, once upon a time a couple years ago, a phenomenal athlete at Merrimack High School. An incredible softball player. When she was 18 and a senior, she had a lot of colleges come scout her at games, offer scholarships. Molly was also dating a boy named, so some sources say Pedo and some sources say Pete. Yeah, I don't know. Regardless, she had a boyfriend whose name started with a P. Yep. (laughs) And she worked at a donut shop. Mm -hmm. And like I said, Molly and her boyfriend were pretty close with Stephanie and Anthony. Molly would help Stephanie out with her kids. But then their relationship started to sour when Molly started taking Anthony's side in arguments. Mm backing up Anthony as opposed to backing up her best friend, Stephanie. Right. Which, I mean, girl code number two. Right, <laughs> right. Hello. Yeah. Even if even if he's right, yeah. why are you taking his side? You can't. That's literally illegal. And he wouldn't be right because he would be abusing the shit out of her. Right. Stephanie would feel upset and betrayed because her best friend was taking her boyfriend's side, even after Molly knew how abusive Anthony was to not only Stephanie, but her children. Yeah, that's awful. So I think, too, that Molly, I think, too, that it adds up mm-hmm. that Molly and Anthony were sleeping together and cheating on each other's partners. Right. Because why is Molly all of a sudden taking his side in arguments and, like, right. backing him and supporting him? Because yeah. they are fucking. Right. Of course. Of course. Rude. Yeah. <laughs> like. Yeah. And it's so, rude. it's so out of left field for Molly to suddenly turn into this person because she was known, like you said, as a great athlete and she was known as a good student and like she had a future. Right. In fact, her high school coach, Dick Bean, which is so sorry, that's your name. He is quoted as saying that all of the girls he coached during nearly a decade at that school, Molly is one of the last he would have predicted to have trouble with the law. And He even said that she was a good student who intended to go to college. You said she'd been scouted by a whole bunch and she wanted to go to college on a full scholarship. And for whatever reason, that just did not happen. Maybe Dick Bean says it was because she didn't have a lot of guidance and Uh, maybe not enough. He was trying and trying and it just did not end up happening, which is unfortunate because she had potential. She really did, Uh, you know, until she murdered someone. It seemed like things had kind of changed with Molly in October of 2009, which was about two to three years after she graduated high school. She was actually arrested on assault charges after she had apparently assaulted two of her family members. It's not really clear who they were, but she supposedly had assaulted them. It's unknown the extent of their injuries. In addition to that, she had been found with a stash of cocaine. She was also arrested alongside a man named Vladimir Santos, who is unrelated to Anthony Santos and also Pete Santos or Pato. It's hard to tell her high school boyfriend. So there's a lot of Santos family members 
in this town, whether they're related <laughs> or not, unsure. Apparently, the the Santos that she was with at this arrest had two pit bulls with him, was waiting very menacingly, and then when the cops tried to talk to him, he ran. And uh, ultimately, I mean, they caught him, and they found cocaine on him as well. So, unfortunately, as well as that, while Molly... Obviously, you know, she killed someone and she had clearly gone from great softball player to a murderer. She had been in the court system for a long time. This was not new for her. And ironically, it wasn't at fault of her. It was something that happened to her. Apparently, in 2004, Molly came forward and accused her dad, Harvey Martell, of having sexually assaulted her in November of 2002 when she was 14. Oh, God. Yeah. So Harvey's trial for these allegations was set for four years later. I don't know why it took so long. And Molly disappeared right before the trial was supposed to begin. Like, she was not going to testify. So they had to drop the charges. They had to. She wouldn't testify. So when Molly was on trial for this murder, her dad actually ended up being in jail for the sexual assault charges. He had been at that point charged with it. Some people say this maybe could be a part of her villain origin story. Obviously, being sexually assaulted is a horrific thing, no matter who you are. And to be sexually assaulted by your dad is fucking terrible. So I do have sympathy on that part of her mm. life, because that's awful. And maybe it is a part of her villain origin story. Could be. When Molly was arrested, she was charged with two counts of second-degree murder for the stabbing. During the trial, defense attorneys attempted to argue that it was Stephanie Campbell who wielded the knife, and Molly acted in self-defense. Molly also originally proclaimed the murder was self-defense, and this stunt was rejected by the jury in about two hours. Yeah, because if you think of it, okay, Stephanie comes out with you with a knife. You disarm her, or you're fighting in the struggle. You're trying to fight her off, defend yourself, and she ends up stabbed four times. I would expect more like slash wounds on the wrists or, you know, you put your hands up to your face trying to get away or maybe like just barely like a superficial wound while you're trying to, you know, get her off of you. Not four deep stab wounds to the chest. Exactly. That's a little intentional and does not line up with that story. Molly also falsified evidence and cut herself with the knife to make it look like self-defense. Yikes. Assistant Attorney General Peter Hinckley stated, quote, she manufactured injuries, she tampered with evidence, and she conspired with another person. In the end, she made choices in this case. Absolutely. As for Anthony Santos, well, I bet you're wondering, wasn't he there, at least initially, with Molly? And wait a second, didn't he have a no-contact order with Stephanie? You would be correct. On November 3rd, the next day after Stephanie had been murdered, he was actually arrested on unrelated stalking charges regarding Stephanie, basically because of the fact that he had been, quote, within a few feet of Stephanie and had broken that no contact order. So at the time of this stalking charge, Anthony had actually been free on bail on assault charges. Now, these assault charges also related to Stephanie. In September, when they still were living together, he had been charged with assaulting Stephanie and one of their sons. According to arrest records, Anthony had thrown a bedside lamp at Stephanie, which hit her in the nose, and then it ricocheted off and hit her 10-year-old son in the neck. 
Jesus Christ. Uh-huh. A whole goddamn bedside lamp. Yep. Not considering the fact that his child was right nearby. Yeah, it's messed up. Here's the worst part of it. Is that at this point, Anthony Santos did ask the prosecutors and police why his stalking and assault charges had not been dismissed yet. He said, quote, I don't know how to politely say it. She's deceased. I don't see why this case is going any further. After all, he reasoned, the prison charges were related to someone, quote, who doesn't even exist anymore, end quote. Isn't that the most insensitive, ignorant, fucked up thing you've ever heard? The mother of your children was stabbed by your bitch ass girlfriend. Not even your girlfriend, your bitch ass side hoe. <laughs> and that is all you care about is yourself and your own charges yep. for assaulting said victim of said stabbing. Yeah. What the fuck? His reasoning is, first of all, that would mean every person who murdered someone should be off the hook because the person they murdered is no longer alive. <laughs> right. It does not make sense. It just doesn't, it does not erase the past. Like, I can't even deal. When I read that, I just about wanted to reach through my computer and strangle him. Like, that was so messed up. So messed up. To even, I don't know how to politely say it. Uh, yeah, because you, that's not, there's no way. There's no, in no part of the world is that okay. And even the phrasing, like, she doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, let's use some critical thinking skills and talk about why she doesn't exist anymore. Because you were there for the first part of the altercation. Mm -hmm. And also, you didn't treat her very well. Remember the whole lamp thing? Yeah. And again, with the own, his own son being right there, too, getting some of the collateral damage. Absolutely terrible. This guy. I'm telling you. One of Stephanie's former neighbors, Patricia Gage, as well as Anthony, actually testified against Molly. Interesting. Prosecution said that Molly had brought a small folding knife to fight Stephanie, who was, of course, unarmed. Right. Prosecutors also attempted to argue for a longer sentence, asking for 30 years to life in prison. Their argument was that not only did Molly stab Stephanie to death, she immediately, immediately fled to a different state. Right. As well as falsifying evidence. Molly Martell's attorney said that Molly's trauma she endured, including the sexual abuse at the hands of her father, as well as other things, are what led her to commit the crime. Attorney Eric Wilson stated, quote, She wasn't born to be defended in a murder case. You've got to wonder why, what happened in the last 23 years that put Molly Martell in that chair. Hmm. I'm, and I'm not doubting that the assault from her father didn't have factor in her behavior in general. A hundred percent could believe that. But her sexual assault that happened has nothing to do with Stephanie's murder. Not even There was no sexual component to that. It was pretty much just an argument. Right. They had an argument and then she threatened Stephanie, I'm going to come back here with a knife. Went home, got a knife, returned back to the scene of the crime, fulfilled her promise. And then booked it. Like... I'm not going to sit here and argue that she doesn't have a trauma history. Right. I'm not going to sit here and argue that if you have trauma, especially as a child, it affects your development. Yeah. It affects your brain chemistry. Yeah. You could be a fucked up person for the rest of your life because of the horrific trauma you endured. Of course. Sure. 
does every person ever who is sexually assaulted go around murdering other people who have no correlation to that sexual assault? Absolutely not. I would say no. Yeah. And honestly, too, I would argue for the flip side. Mm. Because when I was a pediatric psych nurse Mm. and dealt with little tiny children who were dealing with some of the most horrific trauma I've ever heard of in my life, they were some of the most compassionate, empathetic, understanding people because they had been through hell. Right. So they were going to be kinder to others because a lot of them had this perspective of, wow, you really don't know what other people are going through. Yeah. So treat everybody with kindness because you have no idea what people have been through. You have no idea their backgrounds. Yeah. Wow. That's wonderful that you saw that so often. Mm. That's great that they use that in a good way, which is hard. It is so hard when you are traumatized and for so long and you can't escape it. Like you leave school and you go home and that's what you deal with. Right. You don't have an escape when it's in your house consistently. So I'm not dismissing the fact that she had a shit upbringing and that was awful. And she endured so much trauma that a young child should never have to go through. Right. That did not excuse what she did. And honestly, I don't think it provides a reason for what she did. No, absolutely not. There is no justifiable reason why she murdered Stephanie. Not at all. So, like you said, Katie, the prosecutors were saying 30 to 50 years in jail. That would be appropriate. The judge, however, her name was Jillian Abramson, she had a little bit of sympathy regarding Molly's case, which honestly is kind of surprising to me because she had been arrested before for assault. So it's not like she had a squeaky clean record and all of a sudden murdered someone. Right. In an act of self-defense, quote unquote. Judge Abramson said... If there's anybody that can be rehabilitated by a prison sentence, it's possibly you. Which, listen, I love the sentiment. I feel like a lot of judges don't view criminals that way and maybe don't consider that as much. And Mm. so the fact that she did is great. Except that I think she's wrong. I think Molly should go to prison for a long time because she murdered somebody's mother. Right. And I think it's interesting because clearly the judge viewed Molly how the motel owner viewed Molly, which is a young girl, long blonde hair, Mm -hmm. former high school athlete. Meek. Right. Meek, shy, nice, polite. Yeah. That doesn't mean that if you're nice and you're a tall white girl Mm -hmm. who was a high school athlete and you're nice to somebody for being polite, that doesn't mean that you can't have the capacity to be a murderer. It's literally... The story of every, like, psychopath serial killer. They don't feel emotion. It's so easy for them to be nice and hide the facade that, oh, I like to cut off little boys' penises. Like, it just doesn't, just because you come off as that way does not mean that's who you are. And that's exactly what happened here. Right. And I'm wondering if she looked a little different, then maybe she would have been treated differently in the eyes of that judge. Yeah, I would agree. So... Molly did end up being sentenced to 20 to 40 years in prison. As of right now, she is still in jail. She has served about 11 years of her sentence. The earliest she will be released will be in September of 2029. Her maximum sentence is October 2050. That doesn't feel that far away. Nope. That's good. It doesn't. That's good. (laughs) Stephanie's mother said that Stephanie's children are doing okay. You know, as good as they can be. Yeah. Quote, the boys are doing pretty good. They're with their aunt. They're doing very well. And the daughter lives with her father. So they're all doing very well. And we're coping. Mm. From one of the articles I saw, 
the father of Jasmine seemed to be, they seemed to have a much more civil, normal co-parenting relationship in that he, he spoke pretty highly of Stephanie and how awful it was that she was murdered and that, you know, obviously he felt terrible for the daughter. And it seemed like a totally different can of worms than Anthony Santos. Completely. Like, he was so much normaler. So, I, you know, I didn't know that there had been an update about her children. So that's how well can you be doing, really? Well, guys, tell us what you think. Do you think that Molly should have gotten a longer sentence? Should her maybe violent crime factor in more to her sentence versus her history of being a great softball player and being assaulted <laughs> by her dad? Right. Definitely let us know. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at truecrimeny. Oh, lowercase. Or you can send us an email at truecrimeny at gmail.com. We also have a website, truecrimene.com. You could go to our pages we have for our episodes and look at this one. Pages for other episodes we have done. You could go to our contact page where we have a handy dandy submission tool. You could be anonymous if you so choose. You could leave your name if you want to. If you leave your name and you send us a case based in New England, please, and we decide to cover it on an episode, you will get a shout out just like the one we did at the top of this episode. Thank you again, Carrie, for sending this one our way. Yes, thank you so much. If you scroll down past our handy dandy submission tool just ever so slightly, you will see our buy us a coffee link. That allows you to show your appreciation, give thanks, maybe buy us a coffee. And for those of us, aka Liz, who do not drink coffee, a little hot chocolate, perhaps. I love hot chocolate. But honestly, you do not have to give us any money or buy us any coffees or otherwise hot beverages. (laughs) Because just you being here today and just you listening in general really means the most to us. And we appreciate you guys so much. Absolutely. And... Just as a side note, the record is 10 coffees. (laughs) I think we had two or three people buy us 10 coffees. Which is honestly crazy. That's amazing. So if you guys are feeling like competitive niceness is your thing, (laughs) 10 is the number to beat. Which is only a mere $50. But that's fine. That's nothing for you richy riches. But anyway... Honestly, too, if you guys decide you would rather take that money and donate it to a cause such as the one we're doing our next swear jar on, maybe ones we've done in the past, maybe message us and ask us what organizations we like. Mm -hmm. If you have an organization that you feel strongly about and you really enjoy and you want to do something a little nice, we would love if you donated that money instead of buying us a coffee and maybe shot us a DM, an email, a message saying, hey, you guys inspired me to donate. Amazing. Whatever you do doesn't have to involve money. We're just thankful that you're here. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye.